From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. For decades, the Valley has been challenged by high unemployment rates. A big reason for this is a lack of a qualified workforce. What can be done by the state to improve career readiness, particularly in coordination with our community colleges? We'll ask Sharon McConville. She's with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. But perhaps that's more of a long-term systemic challenge. What about right now? Recently, the Valley received two grants from the federal government, totaling $88 million to improve local workforce development and training. $23 million was awarded to the Fresno Economic Development Corporation for its Build for Scale grant application, and $65 million was awarded to the Central Valley Community Foundation for its Fresno Madera Future of Food Innovation, or F3, coalition. What are the specifics of those programs? We'll ask the leaders of both organizations, Leanne Eager, the President and CEO of the Fresno Economic Development Corporation, and Ashley Swearingen, the President and CEO of the Central Valley Community Foundation. Those conversations in a moment. Funding for the Maddie Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc. Students serving students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Maddie Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the Maddie Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. You know, the Valley has long suffered from chronic unemployment. Indeed, the Valley is some of the worst unemployment in the nation. That's in spite of the fact that there are jobs here. They are some plentiful jobs, actually. The problem is, are there enough people that are skilled to do those jobs? Um, and that often training is a big barrier to employment. Um, our guest today is Shannon McConville. She's actually an expert in this area. She's a research analyst with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute, and she's written an interesting uh, article on uh, a report entitled Improving Career Education Pathways into California's Workforce, which is very relevant for, for here in the Valley. Welcome to the Matter Report. Thanks, Mark. It's nice Good to be here. Good to see you again. Hey, uh, so I want to ask you, um, you suggest in your report that California's approach to career education pathways needs to be reevaluated. Why do you say that? Well, you know, ideally we want career education programs, especially those that are provided by our public institutions like the California Community Colleges to align with in-demand jobs so that they can get jobs and employment when they've when they've completed those. And, you know, we've just we're we're kind of coming out of the pandemic, which really did change some of the labor market um, and in employment patterns. And so, um, you know, in some ways, the pandemic kind of fast forwarded some of the trends we were seeing, whether that was being more online or, or, or other things. Um, well, so online for sure. I mean, that that is a change that we're not going back. No, um, we're, we're not. And you see it in healthcare and various industries, retail. And so, um, you know, and that, that was a trend that was happening in the labor market. But mm -hmm. I think a lot of folks and analysts think that the pandemic has really fast forwarded some of those trends. And so that all means that our career education needs to be responsive to that, to try to understand what the skills 
um, for the jobs kind of in the next, both in the, the near term and the long term, right? What those jobs look like and how they can train workers. There, there are some basic terms here, which for you, I'm sure are very simple, but for, for, for all of us, can you educate us? What is the difference between workforce education and job training? Um, we use those uh, largely interchangeably. I mean, it's also sometimes called vocational training. Um, here, we're really talking about um, post-secondary um, institutions um, providing skills and training for um, different types of jobs. And typically, those are related to the industry sectors where those jobs may be. But this is where you're really getting kind of targeted um, training for a particular, say, industry or, or, or type of field to go into. I'm just wondering, you know, the state's been doing a lot of investing in, in workforce training, but isn't this kind of a private sector thing? Shouldn't employers be the ones do, doing the training? No, that's true. And I mean, uh, employers do provide training. I think, you know, there's always on the job training, right? Um, I think, you know, in some ways, um, jobs have, have changed over the last several decades. We don't have as long a job, job tenure at certain institutions or certain employers. Um, so employers maybe are counting on uh, other public institutions to provide some of that job training um, for, for their workforce. So, so let's talk about some of the challenges and difficulties in, you know, for colleges providing or delivering these pathways for career education. What do you see as some of the impediments? Yeah, so we we did do some interviews in this um, in this project where we were talking to both community college practitioners as well as well as um, employers and workforce development intermediaries who try to connect um, people who are looking for training and jobs um, with with providers of that training. Um, what we learned is it's really difficult for the community colleges to both develop and kind of sustain relationships with employers and industry groups. And that's really this, this crucial link to knowing what, what skills employers want, where the skills that are going to be demanded in the labor market are going. So that means that they have to adjust curricula or understand kind of what, what the opportunities are going to be. Um, and so that was what we really heard most. And we heard it from both community college practitioners as well as employers, that it was just difficult to forge these bonds and kind of maintain them over time. Um, and that's really where at least some of the funding that's been dedicated, both at the federal and state level, we're, we're, we're kind of aiming to provide you know, additional resources so that colleges, um, particularly community colleges, um, can make those connections with employers to understand what's happening in the labor market and what skills these employers need so that they can translate those into their programs. It, it seems pretty obvious, but there has been this kind of sometimes this disconnect, the town gown disconnect between universities and community colleges and, and the workforce. And usually it's dependent on like one faculty member reaching out, not necessarily a, a coordinated effort. That, that's kind of problematic. I just want to touch real quickly on uh, the amount of funds invested by the federal and state government. How much are we talking about? Um, quite a bit, actually. Um, so the the legislative anal analyst office, and this is pre-pandemic, um, they estimated that the state deploys about $7 billion annually um, to support different types of career education. Um, some amount of this does come from the federal government um, through programs like the Workforce Investment and Opportunity Act. Um, quite a bit of it is from state general fund, and a lot of that is really focused on the community colleges. Yeah, there, there's a lot of money out here. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about the role of community colleges in workforce training. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, they say the best poverty program is a job. First of all, you have to have the skills to do the job. 
Our guest is Shannon McConville. She's a research fellow with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. She recently issued a, a report on improving California's career pathways in which she noted that, quote, the California Community College System is the largest provider of publicly funded career training uh, education in the state. Community colleges are therefore critical for effective and equitable workforce training, unquote. So what types of workforce training uh, programs are available for students at community colleges? Right. There's a there's really a wide range of programs. Um, in this study, we looked at the six largest career education programs that are offered throughout the community college system. So we have, you know, over 100 community colleges that are located in all regions of the state and they do provide low cost training. So we looked at, um, again, six large, um, the largest career education programs. Those include um, programs in business, information technology, health. Um, family and consumer sciences, which is largely early childhood education programs, um, manufacturing and engineering, um, and public and protective services um, is, is the last one. Yeah, th those all seem, seem to make a lot of sense. Um, so what is the demographic makeup, I'm wondering, in terms of the students enrolled in these career education programs? Who are these people? Right. So like the community colleges, more broadly speaking, they really do more reflect the demographics of the state. Um, nearly 40% of students in career education are Latino, um, about 35% are white, 14% are Asian, and uh, Black students make up about 7%. So they really do look much more like um, California's overall population um, relative to some of our other public higher education um, institutions. And, and men and women are pretty evenly divided as well? They are. It's about half and half, although the men and women really split in different um, areas. So for example, in um, the manufacturing and engineering fields, I think 80 or 90% of students are males. Um, likewise, when we're in family and consumer sciences, which is where early childhood education lives, that's a, it's flipped. It's about 80 or 90% are women, yeah. but overall it's, it's, it's quite similar. And I think your point is well taken. There's a difference between who's attending these community colleges and who attends, attends the CSU or the UCs. Uh, this, the, the community colleges are much more like the general population. Um, UCs and CSUs, not, not quite as much, uh, but that's an interesting point. Now, I assume that most uh, potential students do some sort of kind of cost benefit analysis before they decide to get training. In other words, is the time they spent and, and money they spend getting the training worth the wages they're going to get in the long run? So what are some of the opportunity costs for students in career education um, and how can they be mitigated? Yeah, no, it's it, it's a very good point and one that I really think we need to keep stay focused on. Um, so in the community college system and in the students that we were looking at, um, they are often um, balancing other responsibilities. So many of them are working. We do see quite a bit of part-time enrollment um, in career education um, studies. And so this is, you know, to be a student does take time away from other things like being in the labor force. And so to the extent that um, community college students tend to be um, come from lower income backgrounds. Um, they may also be working while they're in school. And so that really does underscore kind of the, the need for them to be able to move through the program, um, to know what courses they need to have those courses offered so that they complete whatever types of training, um, you know, to complete why they're, why they're there and why they're mm -hmm. attending. You know, a lot of times you hear like in higher education, oh, there's not a good connection between, you know, what you're teaching and what they actually do on the job. What about in, in at community college level in these career education pathways? Are, are, is it really connected? Is it really job relevant? 
you know, I mean, that's the that's ideally the hope. And I think in I think in several of the fields it is. This is a lot of practical hands-on training, right? So whether you're in a healthcare field, you know, there are clinical components, there, you know, there are actual things um, that are happening, or for example, say a lot of the engineering or manufacturing jobs, these again, you know, whether it's welding or certain electrical, you know, skills, but these are things that really do require a certain um, very, very targeted to a certain type of position or job. Would also the jobs vary dependent on, depending on region? I mean, there are some jobs that are, that are relevant to Central California that wouldn't be relevant to the coast and vice versa. That's true. We talked to one um, like manufacturing or advanced engineering um, employer, and they were actually in the Inland Empire. Um, but I think there are other places in the Valley, but, you know, they have a larger manufacturing presence or you have um, programs that are, say, in logistics. And those are going to exist in places that have more space and have more warehousing. Um, I've mentioned healthcare a few times, but that's one of the, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the fields where there really are opportunities kind of throughout the state. Yeah, there, there, there's no no question. There's healthcare uh, professionals needed everywhere. Well, up next, we're going to talk about good paying jobs. Do you need a college education? Sometimes maybe the answer really is no. Maybe your credential will work. So we're going to talk about credentialing programs and how they can help some people move along the career pathway. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Looking for an unbiased, fact-based analysis of the key issues confronting the San Joaquin Valley? Listen to the Maddie Report Valley Views podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, nearly 1 million students have pursued career education at California's community colleges over the last decade. Many times, it's not necessarily to pursue a degree, but rather to get a credential that signifies a certain uh, experience, knowledge, and competence in a given field. Are these programs delivering on that promise? Our guest is Shannon McConville. She's with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California, and she studied career education pathways um, and has done a report, a recent report on that. So I want to ask you, you know, what information do we need to make sure that community colleges are more effectively and efficiently delivering career education programs? Yeah. One of the first things I think we, we really need to understand is what students are hoping to get from their time at the community colleges. So um, it is the case that the community college system has started collecting information, and this is, you know, several years on what, what the students' goals are. And so, you know, community colleges are open um, access institutions. They take essentially all students. And so it's important to know, you know, is the student entering a program and really wanting to get a very specific career education credential? How can we get them through the fastest? Versus a lot of students are looking to transfer, right? Transfer to a four-year college. And so really helping students understand what they need to do and what courses they need to take to meet their goals as quickly as possible, I think is one of the key key pieces of information. And that's a unique mix at, at the community college level, because you know, if you're going to college, you're typically four-year college, you're looking for a four-year degree, but a community college may not. You may be looking for a credential and not necessarily a degree. Uh, so what is the PPIC tracking when they're looking at effectiveness of career education programs? Yeah, well, be, because sometimes we don't really know what students want, um, we, we looked at kind of four different milestones along a pathway to understand what students maybe, what, what field we, we, we thought they were intending in. And so essentially we have to look at their coursework to kind of decide, yes, it looks like you maybe wanted to get a health credential and then we can track and see whether in fact they did get a health credential, right? And so we looked at what programs they, they were in whether they completed an initial credential in that program. Um, we also wanted to look at stackable credentials. And so that's as if you maybe completed a short-term credential in one field, did you return to the community colleges? And did you say complete a second credential that maybe was a higher level or could advance you along in, in the career that you were um, 
or in the in the workplace that you were entering as a result of the credential. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. Did you find when you examined students who finished that first credential that they returned for a second credential? We did. We found almost half of students, I think, especially students who initially complete a short-term credential. So in the community colleges, the highest level credential that you can earn is an associate degree without moving on and transferring. Um, But they do offer a lot of different types of credentials, and some are uh, what we call short-term credentials. They can require as few as six units to complete and as many as, I think, 29 units. And so for those students who completed the short-term credentials, we did see higher shares that would return after they finished the credential to complete additional coursework. And But you were looking at, at, at different credentials, you know, healthcare, business, IT. Did you see a difference in the discipline in terms of finishing that credential? We did. So, so we do see pretty large differences in finishing, say, the first credential. Um, health, students in health programs have much higher completion rates. Almost or about half of students who we we define as entering or um, intending to complete a health credential eventually do. Um, this compares to much lower rates in, say, something like business or IT. Fewer than twenty percent of students who take a lot of courses in those fields eventually earn a credential in that field. And my, my understanding from your report is licensing has a lot to do with this. In the, in the healthcare professions, licensing is kind of important. And so students want to finish those credentials in healthcare. That's right. Uh, it, it's also true that um, some of the health programs, uh, you know, registered nursing being kind of the, the key one, they, they do have some um, entrance requirements. So in, in a way um, that also kind of changes maybe who the students are that enter these programs, but they do meet, have to meet certain requirements to get into the program. And that's not true for nearly all other community college or career education programs. So that likely impacts it as well. And, and the, the stackable credential pathways, that's something you t- can you first of all define what a, a stackable credential pathway is? And my, my, I guess my understanding is it's, it's basically taking, taking in smaller units. Um, instead of doing it, you know, 30 units or whatever, you're going to break it down into three 10 unit uh, stackable credentials. Uh, how successful are those? Are, do people pursue those? Is it making these smaller bite sizes better um, or not? Yeah. And, you know, Honestly, that was one of the main reasons why we did this study. We hear a lot about stackable credentials and we wanted to see kind of in practice how often students are doing them. Overall, we don't find that many students are actually completing a stackable pathway. And we define a stackable career pathway where you earn an initial um, credential, um, usually a short-term or long-term credential um, in a particular field. Then you return after you've completed that credential, you earn additional courses or you earn additional units, take more courses in that area, and then you complete a second credential. Um, Overall, we find fewer than 10% of students ever manage to make it through a stackable credential. And there are slight differences across fields, um, but they're not, but they're not very large. That was a little surprising to me in your report. I would think that you, you break it down into smaller chunks that it might be more doable. Let me ask you this. If you compare students getting credentials versus associate's degrees. Um, how does the time, how much time does it take? I mean, is it pretty similar or? Right, I mean, and that's one of the things with stackable pathways. You know, you want, if an associate degree is what's gonna give you the highest say wage return or the highest, uh, you know, um, economic mobility, you know, if you break it into chunks and students earn a credential and then they go and work for a while and then they have to return, that might take them off the path to the associate degree, right? Or, or, or a bachelor's degree or to transfer. And so we want to be very clear. The pathways really need to be well-defined. They need to, you need to know if I finish this, you know, I can come back and this is the next step. 
um, those sorts yeah. of things. And some of that clarity isn't really there in terms of how it's defined and telegraphed to students. So I think that's one of the one of the big issues. Okay, well, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about how to improve California's career pathways. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. The Maddie Daily e-newsletter provides you with a quick, comprehensive, and up-to-date look at what's happening in Valley politics, as well as what's happening in Sacramento and Washington, D.C. that impacts the Valley. Be more informed about what's happening in your community and your Valley. Sign up for the Maddie Daily e-newsletter at maddieinstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Shannon McConville, a research fellow with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California, about a recent report she wrote about career education in California's community colleges. Some of the basic findings were, you know, one, overall, few career education students earn a credential. Two, those that do, it takes about three years to complete their credentials. Number four, numerous institutions and actors shape student success. And it's important, number four, that success involves uh, all the stakeholders being involved in the process. And I wanted to ask you about uh, the profile of students who are successful, successfully completing that first credential. Are there differences based on demographics? There are. Um, and so uh, we looked at things across gender, age, and race, ethnicity. Um, we find that um, female students are more likely to complete credentials, career education credentials. We also find older students are, are more likely, um, as are Asian um, and white students, career education students um, tend to complete at higher rates than Latino or, or Black students do. Um, and the other thing I'd add there is that the differences across certain groups really emerge pretty early in the trajectories of these students. So within the first one to two terms of enrollment, the, um, the path or the trajectories to success for some students kind of start veering off from other. Right. From other and, one, and one of the things I, I think I got from your report was being a full-time student makes a big difference too, in terms of success. Honestly, that is the biggest difference and it, it mm -hmm. far outweighs any of the demographic profile. So mm -hmm. if a student is able to attend even one term full-time, that really makes so much of a difference. And if that term can be early on in their in their program, it really does make a huge difference. Again, that dwarfs the other demo, the, the disparities or differences that we see across these different demographic groups. So that kind of begs the question, what kind of resources do we need to make these programs more successful? Yeah, I, you know, and so, I mean, the, the biggest thing would be how can we help students to attend full time to be able to afford to really focus on just their studies, um, get through the program quickly so that it doesn't take, say, three years to earn a short term credential, but instead it takes six months to earn a short term credential and, and attending full time and really be able to focus on their studies. So that's things like, you know, is there financial aid available? Um, it, you know, or wage replacement. We heard about that from some employers who actually pay their current employees who are trying to advance in their jobs. They will pay them their regular rate even when they're in school getting that additional training. And it's also a, fl a flexible schedules too. If people are working, you know, they can't have a traditional semester quarter system. It has to be something that meets their, their needs. We did hear that quite a bit too from our interviews, especially amongst say employers and um, workforce development partners that, you know, the community colleges, while low cost and, you know, they are more flexible now, especially post pandemic, maybe more online courses, right. courses in the evenings. Um, at the same time, they still are on a semester system. And that's not always when, say, a person is trying to get training for a job or say the timeline that employers need to find their workers. Right. And so that was one of the big you know, difficulties with, with working with the community colleges. Having, having been with a university for 35 years, I can, I can appreciate how difficult it is to, to turn an academic institution. It's like trying to turn a battleship sometimes. Um, but, you know, there's this connection between the community colleges and employers. 
both have advantages, benefits to, to both. How can they strengthen that relationship? Yeah, so we we have, I think I mentioned earlier when we were talking about funding, um, there is additional monies that are coming from the state general fund for the strong workforce program. And those are these regional collaboratives that are really intending to help, um, again, at a regional level, that's where our labor markets are organized, but to help um, community college um, programs really connect with the employers in their region um, to develop to develop programs and really building those relationships. And you mentioned earlier, a lot of times it's one faculty member. Well, if that faculty member leaves or something, then then that relationship ends. And so we also heard that, you know, the kind of the employer engagement needs to be kind of a college-wide, you know, endeavor with some of the, the leaders of the college to really solidify those relationships so that they can keep keep developing their programs and keep making sure they have those connections to the labor market. We've only got about 30 seconds left, but I did want to ask you, what did you conclude with the priorities community colleges should focus on moving forward when it comes to career education and workforce training? Well, you know, we're, we're exiting the pandemic right now. The community colleges have um, much lower enrollment. They're still, you know, working to get back some of the enrollment. And so I do think trying to find ways to offer um, good training programs that students can get through um, and then get connected to the labor market um, and, and really be able to telegraph that information to students. You know, if you want to do this, come and, and enroll in this. It will take you this amount of time and then you'll be able to have, you know, a job in this field. And, and so I think that, that they really need to be targeted and really try to help people um, connect to the kinds of training that they want. There's no question. We've heard it before. It's it, Learning is a lifelong process and community colleges play an important role in that. I want to thank Shannon, Shannon McConville with the PPIC for joining us. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening to this program. A functioning democracy requires a well-informed electorate. Indeed, there's nothing more important. And by taking the time to become better informed, you're not only supporting fact-based decision-making, but you're doing your part to strengthen our democracy. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson once wisely noted that the best defense of democracy is an informed electorate. So thank you for being an engaged citizen and helping make the San Joaquin Valley and California better and our nation a more perfect union. Now, back to the program. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. The federal government recently invested $88 million in the Valley to improve workforce training and development. How will that money be spent, and what are the expected deliverables? We'll ask those responsible for making sure those dollars are spent effectively and efficiently. Leanne Eager, the president and CEO of the Fresno Economic Development Corporation, and Ashley Swearingen, the president and CEO of the Central Valley Community Foundation. Welcome. Climate change has been a top priority for California for decades. Over that time, the state has undertaken a variety of innovative and ambitious steps to reduce the magnitude of climate change on our state. What are they and have they actually made a difference? Our guest is Sarah Cornett. She is a fiscal and policy analyst specializing in air quality, energy, and climate change with the nonpartisan legislative analyst office. She recently offered, authored a report summarizing the state's actions to address climate change. Welcome to the Matter Report. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, you note in your report that the state adopted some really ambitious goals uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions starting in 2006. You know, what was that goal uh, to limited uh, uh, emissions uh, to 1990 levels. And how they go about that, did they achieve that goal? What happened there? 
So in, in 2006, Assembly Bill 32 gave the California Air Resources Board, um, also known as CARB, regulatory authority to achieve the maximum cost-effective and technologically feasible emissions reductions. So that, that bill designated CARB as the state's lead agency for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And the state actually met um, this 2020 goal in 2016, four years early, uh, which was largely driven by emissions reductions in the electricity sector. That's amazing. I mean, they, they set the goal for 2020 and they met it four years early, but now the goals get a little more ambitious. So since the 2020 goal was met, they've set some new goals for 2030 to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions to 40% below 1990 levels. And you noted in your report that, quote, emissions will need to decline much faster than historical trends in order to meet this two, uh, 2030 goal. AB 32 requires CARB to update with something called a scoping plan every five years, detailing how it plans to meet those goals. The latest was adopted in December of 2022. Can you tell us a little bit about this CARB scoping plan and some of the action items that are, that are part of this plan? Yes, yeah, so, so as you mentioned, CARB is required to complete the scoping plan process every five years. And the scoping plan is designed to be a roadmap for the state in meeting its emissions reduction goals and models different assumptions for how the state might meet the reductions and in which sectors um, they could be focused. However, as we describe in our office's recent report on the scoping plan, um, assessing California's climate policies, the 2022 scoping plan update, which is available on the LAO website. Um, the scoping plan lacks a clear strategy and action items for meeting the targets, especially the, the 2030 emissions reduction goal. So in, in that report, we, we recommend that the legislature direct CARB to provide more information about how it plans to meet the 2030 target. And you can find a more robust, a, a, a more robust discussion of the plan and the state's progress um, in, in that report that we mentioned. That yeah, it's one thing to have a plan, but you've got to have some kind of strategy to, to, to meet those goals. Uh, let me ask you this, you know, transportation, really big part of the problem here. 41% of the state's greenhouse gas emissions are tied to transportation. It's indeed the single largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the state. So the state's aggressively pushing, you know, things like uh, zero emission vehicles. Uh, what are those requirements the state's asking for and what impact do you think it's going to have on greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, so, so CARB adopted the Advanced Clean Cars 2 rule in August of last year. So that new rule requires that by 2035, all new cars and light duty trucks sold in California must be zero emission or plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. And CARB estimates that by 2040, this new regulation will cut uh, emissions from transportation by 50%. And um, CARB is also considering adopting a similar regulation for medium and heavy duty vehicles. So uh, this, this new regulation they're considering known as the Advanced Clean Fleets Rule um, will propose that all, will um, require that all new trucks and buses sold be zero emission by either 2036 or 2040. CARB hasn't decided which year it is expected to vote um, in 2023. Yeah, that, that, those are big issues for the Valley. In, in, in Southern California, it's autos, but in the Valley, it's actually trucks and heavy-duty heavy vehicles that really are emitting the pollution here. So that's that's really interesting for the Valley. Let me ask you this. Uh, the legislature is also getting into the act. Uh, they recently had a piece of legislation called AB 1279. Uh, it was passed in 2022. What did that do? So AB 1279 requires the state to achieve net zero GHG emissions, um, also known as carbon neutrality by 2045. So this essentially means that the amount of emissions being added to the atmosphere 
equals the amount of emissions that are being removed through carbon sequestration, carbon capture, or other technologies. And AB 1279 also requires the state to reduce emissions to at least 85% below 1990 levels by, 25, by 2045. Um, and by 2035, CARB must report to the legislature on how it's going and um, the, the feasibility of hitting that target. Yeah, those are some pretty, it's pretty ambitious goals. You know, up next, you know, you may have heard of the terms carbon capture and carbon dioxide removal, uh, but we're not quite sure what they mean. Well, up next, we're going to find out what they mean, discuss what impact they may have on California's efforts to achieve carbon neutrality in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kevler with the Maddie Institute. You know, the state has identified carbon capture and carbon dioxide removal technologies as important parts in their effort to, to achieve carbon neutrality. What exactly do they entail? We're talking with Sarah Cornett. She's an energy expert with the Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office. So for the un uninitiated, what is carbon capture and what is carbon dioxide removal? So uh, carbon capture utilization and storage technologies, also known as CCUS, prevent carbon dioxide emissions from being released into the atmosphere. So these can take the form of technologies added, um, being added to existing industrial operations or refineries to limit emissions. And the captured carbon dioxide is typically compressed, uh, transported by pipeline or truck, then injected underground. And carbon dioxide removal, also known as CDR, um, is similar, but it involves extracting uh, existing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and, and storing it using similar methods or repurposing it into other products such as fuels or chemicals. So how effective are these in reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere? Do they work? So these, these technologies are, are still developing, and while there are a couple of pilot projects, um, there's not much fully underway in California. Um, their, their, effic their efficacy is a little bit unclear at this point, um, with recent projects in other states struggling to meet targets and facing high costs. Um, however, in the, the 2022 scoping plan, um, which lays out California's plan for meeting its emissions reductions targets, um, their Air Resources Board proposes to use these technologies as, as key tools to meet emissions reduction goals. So we'll likely be seeing more of them moving forward. Yeah, it, it seems to I me mean, a little dicey if other places are using them, they haven't, you know, they, they're, it's a little costly, but I guess we're gonna see because they really haven't done it on a large scale, but what are the potential downsides of, of carbon capture and carbon dioxide removal? Yeah, so, um, so these technologies are, are quite energy intensive and existing projects have also resulted in increased air pollution. So um, because any new projects would likely be sited in or near existing fossil, fossil fuel infrastructure, it's possible they could result in greater environmental and public health risks to certain neighboring communities that are already overburdened by the impacts of um, fossil, fuel, uh, fossil fuel extraction and refining. So, Proximity to fossil infrastructures associated with respiratory issues and certain cancers due to greater concentration of air pollutants. And research has found that communities that have a higher proportion of people with lower incomes and people of color are more likely to live in these areas, which raises equity concerns for the state. Right, the fairness, the fairness issue of you're, you're putting this uh, technology in, in communities that are already kind of uh, hard pressed when it comes to health issues. Let me ask you this. The legislature passed in the governor's science, something called SB 905, requires California's ARB Air Resources Board to establish a regulatory framework for carbon capture and removal programs. Can you provide some details? Yeah, so SB 905 um, 
requires the Air, Resource, Air Resources Board to develop a streamlined permitting process for these projects by 2025. So um, the earthquake, environmental, and air quality risks of these proposed projects must be considered in this new permitting process. Um, and the Air Resources Board is also required to develop a public database to track um, the deployment of these, pro of these projects as well. Yeah, and they also have, uh, I guess they've established them called the Geologic Carbon Sequestration Group that they have this independent expertise that's going to you talk about, you know, how we can do this safely, uh, more safely. You know, there's a lot of bills, you know, that the legislature's passed around climate change. Another one is SB 1314. Um, what, does, what did that bill do? Yeah, so SB 1314 uh, prohibits the use of um, using captured carbon dioxide in enhanced oil recovery. Um, it, which, which, is a, which is a strategy for extracting crude oil when it, can, when it cannot be extracted by other technologies. So you're actually using the captured CO2 from the refinery and um, you can inject it underground to extract additional crude oil. So this practice is not currently prevalent across California, but um, captured carbon dioxide is expected to become more widely available in the future due to increased use of, of these um, carbon capture technologies. And outside of California, uh, this, this enhanced oil, oil recovery process is, is a fairly established industry practice. Um, yeah, and but, yeah, and it seems like that would be counterintuitive to California's trying to reduce uh, fossil fuel consumption, and this could po possibly work in the other direction. When up next, we still got questions about how we're going to get our energy and where are we going to get it from. As fossil fuels are phased out, where is energy going to come from? Up next, discussion with the states doing to increase the sources of renewable and zero carbon energy. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. The Maddie Institute has become one of the most active public policy institutes in California because of support of people like you. Because of that support, the Maddie Institute has highlighted San Joaquin Valley issues that are often overlooked by those in Sacramento and Washington. If you want the Valley to have a strong voice and you believe in a fact-based, bipartisan, problem-solving approach to politics and public policy, please consider joining us as a Maddie Associate. You can learn more at maddieinstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. In 2018, SB 100 was passed and signed by the governor requiring that all electricity sales to customers be zero carbon by 2045. How is that going to happen? We're talking with Sarah Cornett. She's an energy expert with the nonpartisan state's legislative analyst office. So you noted that um, SB 100, when it was passed, did not have any interim targets. It seems a bit problematic. Um, what is the state's plan to get to zero carbon by 2045? The, the primary policy tool that, that's, been, um, that, that's been used has been the state's existing renewable portfolio standard, which is also known as the RPS. And that standard requires um, electric utilities to increase their use of renewable energy resources rather than fossil fuels to generate electricity. And utilities have largely elected to increase their use of solar and wind energy to comply. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was reading your report, you know, you talk about solar and wind and geothermal, biomass, and small hydroelectric. The two things that are missing there are nuclear and large hydroelectric. Now, maybe the hydroelectric with climate change, we don't have the snowpack, and so maybe that becomes an issue. But I'm wondering, where are we now? Uh, how much of the state's energy needs are being supplied by renewable sources? The, the state has made um, good progress and re renewable energy supplied 36% of retail electricity sales in California in 2020. 
So, and if you include those, those large hydroelectric and nuclear sources, which are considered zero carbon, but not renewable for the RPS, um, zero carbon sources supplied a total of 59% total. So over the last decade, changes in the electricity sector have actually been the primary driver of statewide greenhouse gas emissions reductions. Yeah, I mean, 36% is, is pretty significant, 59% even more so, but it's just interesting. And I think a lot of people would, would argue about large hydro and nuclear, obviously in, in environmentalists would have a problem with that. But um, if you include those 59%, that's, you know, 60% of the way there, but we still have, have a ways to go. You know, uh, last year, SB 1020 was passed um, to finally address what was missing in SB 100. That is, they set targets uh, for the path forward to 100% uh, clean energy sales by 2045. By the way, that, that seems like it's, it's a big target. So what are those, what are we trying to do there? And, and is it reasonable? Is it reasonably attainable? Yeah, so SB 1020 requires that a combination of renewable and zero carbon sources make up 90% of statewide electricity sales by 2030 and 95% by 2035. So um, these, these are, these are pretty, um, aggressive targets, but the state has made significant progress in reducing emissions from the electricity sector in recent years and also invested really heavily in clean energy and in, in the two most recent budget packages. So the state does appear to be on, on a good track. Well, the state's also talking about 100% of its state agencies by 2035 being, uh, you know, using these uh, non-fossil uh, non fuel uh, type energy sources. So it's I mean, the, the goals are, are, are very ambitious and, and some would argue you know, maybe necessary, but they are very ambitious. Another issue uh, that has engendered some dispute or some debate uh, is this issue about the oil and gas wells located near community sites, things like schools, nursing homes, hospitals, churches, youth centers. It's a big issue in, in Kern County. So what are the facts around this issue? So there are there are about 240,000 oil and gas wells in California and state regulators estimate that about 100,000 of these are currently active. Um, and about five and a half million people in California live within one mile of an oil or gas well. Um, and 92% and of those are, are people of color. So this is, this is something that, um, that a lot of Californians are, are, are very familiar to and, and live, live near to. Yeah, um, yeah that, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so so um, living living near a near a well um, also just increases exposure to air pollutants that um, that are harmful to human health, and um, uh, there, there's there's a higher pr proportion of people with lower incomes and people of color living in close proximity. So so there are definitely some equity issues to contend with too. Yeah, I was reading your report is saying that uh, wells that received permits since 2011, 76 percent were in communities with above average poverty rates. So it seems to be concentrated in a certain area. I want to ask you about this. You know, California uh, does not currently have any setback uh, of buffer requirements for gas, for oil and gas uh, wells uh, near community sites. There's a state agency that's responsible for this, and they had a proposed regulation for proposing this 3,200-foot 3, setback in, 2000, uh, in 2021. Uh, it hasn't been adopted yet. The legislature decided to jump in in 2022 and say, we're going to adopt this uh, setback of 3,200 uh, feet. Uh, what is how, do, how are they different, and what does this mean? Mm -hmm. So um, that that the the bill you mentioned is um, essentially enacted the the proposed regulation, um, creating that buffer, but went a step further to require some safety and pollution controls for existing wells within that buffer. 
Uh, however, the, um, this bill was actually challenged by a, a voter referendum, so we'll be on the ballot in 2024, and um, it, it won't go into effect until after that election, should voters choose to uphold it. Right, and so that's that's kind of a key there. One of the reasons that this happens a lot in, in legislation that, that companies, uh, industries don't like is they'll go for a referendum, which which puts the, the bill on hold, law on hold, until either they have enough votes, uh, enough signatures to get it on the ballot, and or it then uh, is is passed by the by the by the voters. So that's going to be interesting, probably in, in November of 2024. Well, up next, we're going to talk about nuclear energy. Uh, some think that that's the bridge fuel uh, for the for the future. Others are vehemently opposed to any extension of nuclear power in the state. Up next, the discussion of nuclear power in California. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. So what's the role of nuclear power in meeting the state's carbon neutrality goals by 2045? We're talking with Sarah Cornett. She's an energy and electricity as well as climate change mitigation expert with the state's nonpartisan legislative analyst office. You know, uh, the proposed imminent closure of PG&E's Diablo Canyon power plant, um, the state's last operating nuclear power plant, has been the focus of some debate for some time. Can you tell us a, a little bit about that situation? So the, the Diablo Canyon plant was uh, scheduled for closure by 2025 uh, due to safety and environmental issues including earthquake risk, but the state began considering authorizing an extension of the plant's operations last year after repeated challenges to meet energy needs during the last few uh, really hot, hot summers. Uh, Diablo Canyon does provide a large um, non-greenhouse gas emitting energy source and the state is prioritizing uh, these these non um, these zero emission resources moving forward. Uh, so growth in solar and wind technologies has supported the transition, but these these resources are still growing. So this this set the stage for discussion of extending Diablo Canyon. Yeah, I mean it's 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 an important source of energy, and during those peak hours, um, you know that, that's you can see why the state would want to keep going. But there's also that seismic situation um, that it sits at, at or near a fault line. Some people are kind of concerned, but the legislature decided, for whatever reason, they decided, listen, we're going to extend the Diablo, Camp, Diablo Canyon operations until 2030. What, if anything, does the legislation require? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so the state did allow the extension, but there are still some steps based on different regulatory and permitting issues at both the state and federal level that will need to have happen uh, before the extension is fully authorized. So the extension legislation did require California's agencies responsible for energy and electricity to prepare a reliability planning assessment that's designed to estimate electricity needs into the future. And it also required um, energy agencies to adopt new targets to reduce peak electric demand, which would limit some of the strain on the states, on the state's existing uh, energy resources. Yeah, it's, 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 it's obviously a very, very big issue. So what can you tell us about the state loaning PG&E $1.4 billion to maintain operations at the Apple Canyon? The, the legislation authorized the state to loan up to $1.4 billion, as you mentioned, over the next couple of years to export the extension. However, PG&E was awarded a, a $1.1 billion grant from the U.S. Department of Energy uh, last November, which will allow PG&E to pay California back for most of the loan. Yeah, and my understanding is they're they're not getting the entire 1.4 billion upfront. They're getting a portion of that. I think it was 600 million uh, initially, and then 800 million later on, based on future appropriations. You know, if I guess if needed, but they do have this this federal money to to pay back that loan. 
And the legislature also indicated uh, its intent to provide $1 billion to support something called a Clean Energy Reliability Investment Plan. It's a lot of money. What exactly is that? So the, the plan is being developed by the California Energy Commission and uh, is expected to include investments that support the state's energy reliability needs, taking clean energy goals into consideration over the next several years. Uh, the administration, um, in a draft plan that was released um, in February, the administration plans to use the funds to support existing reliability programs and ease barriers to new transmission lines, among other things. And the, the full uh, final plan is due to the legislature this spring. And I think also there was something in there about uh, money for, uh, I, I guess, changing, I think it's Diablo Canyon. Um, what do you do with, what do you do with the lands? What do you do with uh, economic development for the area? Because they rely on that for jobs. That's also part of this. Yeah, so so there there were some additional requirements in in the legislation to to uh, to conduct some 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 studies, some examinations to try to ensure that this that the transition won't be won't be too harmful to the local community. That's true. Yeah, it, it's 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 been an operation for some time. It's it's a, it's a big deal both the local economy and for the state uh, electric grid. So you know you've taken a look at all of this legislation, all these attempts uh, over the last decade or so to deal with climate change. What, how do you summarize, how would you summarize the state's uh, climate change actions up to this point? There, there have been a lot of changes and new activity on climate issues over the past several, several, several years. And in the 2022 legislative session, the legislature set some really ambitious new goals, accelerated some of its existing targets, and also adopted new policies that aim to reduce emissions and support clean energy. So meeting these goals and carrying out these, these wide-ranging new policies will require some sustained effort across state government. And in, in our report, we, we recommend that the legislature carefully monitor the administration's progress in, in, in implementing this new legislation and being prepared to take additional action if the state is falling short. Um, because, oh. yeah, there's-, there's We're, there's we're not done yet is basically what we're saying. We're not done yet. We still got a ways to go. Yes. Uh, I want to thank Sarah Fernet with the Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office for joining us. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. The Maddie Institute is your public affairs institute. We are an alliance of the Valley's four public universities, Fresno State, California State University Bakersfield, Stanislaw State, and UC Merced, that have joined forces to better serve the residents of the San Joaquin Valley. Our goal is to support a fact-based, bipartisan, problem-solving approach to the public policy challenges we face as a region, state, and nation. You can learn more about the activities of the Maddie Institute by logging on to our website at maddieinstitute.com.